This is chapter 148 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Ready or not, the summer season is upon us. We kick it off like we always do with the return of our Beach Read series. Plus, we highlight a couple of books that celebrate the iconic Grace Kelly. This summer is definitely going to be unlike summers past. But one thing that you can still do and enjoy is cracking open a book in the backyard or on your socially distant towel at the beach. We kick off our annual Summer Read series with Happy and You Know It, the laugh-out-loud and twisty novel set around a wealthy Manhattan mommy playgroup and their private baby musician. I spoke to author Laura Hankin, who knows a thing or two about singing to the under-two set. Like my main character, Claire, I spent many years working as a playgroup musician to various wealthy families in New York City. Um, So I would, you know, load up my bag of egg shakers and my guitar and travel all across Manhattan and then go into these gorgeous apartments um, and sing to these babies and sort of just stare at the moms and wonder what was going on behind closed doors and what their lives were like. And eventually I decided to write a book about it. Does that mean that some of the anecdotes that show up in the book are based on a real life experience? (laughs) Well, I certainly never got uh, as close as Claire does to any of the mothers that I worked for. But there might be a few little things sprinkled in from real life. And honestly, actually, though, I have stayed in touch with some of the moms and we're Facebook friends and they were awesome. And I hope that when they read this, they know that none of the little snarky bits are about them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really a a funny book about privileged moms. And then, boom, all of a sudden, you drop a bomb in the middle of it, and suddenly it becomes this completely different story that I didn't see coming. Oh, good. (laughs) When you sat down to write this, did you think, oh, I'm just going to write like this fun chiclet book about a mom playgroup or you're like no I'm you know I really want to delve into a a somewhat serious topic I think I always knew that there was going to be a twist when I started writing this book um I, I definitely played with different iterations of it beforehand but once I actually like sat down and started writing I knew roughly what was going to happen in the middle and then roughly what was going to happen in the end. But it was also really fun while leading up to the twist and laying all the groundwork for it to get to take a little bit more time to delve into the, you know, backstories and personalities and vulnerabilities of all of the mothers in this group so that when the twist hits, you really feel it. I love, too, that the moms have all the personalities, but so do the babies. And I think there are going to be a lot of moms out there who are really happy that you included a not perfectly well-behaved child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So one of the moms in this book, Amara, she has a baby, Charlie, who is great, but is just difficult. And she's really worried that uh, he's not developing normally and she can't help but compare him to all the other much more well-behaved babies in the playgroup. And it's really hard and makes her feel very, very bad. And, you know, I think mothers are in like a uniquely vulnerable place um, because they want so badly to do what is best for their babies. And that's why it's made for a really rich environment to explore. 
you know, I won't give anything away, but that point kind of leads into um, a little bit with, with, with the with the bomb I referred to earlier. But there's this pressure to be a perfect mom, a perfect woman. You're not a mom, but I think that's that's also a pretty universal standard for women everywhere. Oh, my God. Yeah, I want to be perfect all the time. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, something like social media really exacerbates that for all of us. And that's why I wanted to explore with one of the mom characters in the book, Whitney, what happens when she falls into this world of having like a popular mom Instagram account. Um, And so she's got to project this perfect life online and it makes everybody else feel bad. But also she herself can't really keep up with it. And so it's making her... Uh, have to spin her wheels as well. There's a, a passage that I highlighted, uh, and I wrote it down here because I, I lost the page it was on. But it just it really stuck with me about about these women, about women in general, about maybe you know women of a certain socioeconomic class. But I really think, like I said, that it's universal. And and if you let if you allow me, I'm gonna I'm going to read it. So your words. Oh. Um, Please read my words to me, yes. (laughs) Men weren't primed from birth like women were, told that they could be anything that they wanted to be while handicapped at every turn by invisible forces, told that they were more than just their looks while also culturally programmed to believe that their value was tied to their desirability. If there is not a woman Mm -hmm. out there who does not relate with that, I don't know what world she's living in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that's in part why, you know, the wellness industry is so successful, right? Because it comes in and it promises us that, like, maybe if you just take this vitamin or drink this smoothie, you can maintain your youth and your beauty and your energy far longer than anybody else can. And then you'll win. (laughs) And moms especially are vulnerable because they're, I mean, let's let's face it, they're sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that you would really want more energy in that uh, circumstance. What do you want readers to to take away? First of all, I hope that readers just feel like reading this book is like sitting down with a friend and having some wine and gossiping, which is, I think, something that a lot of us really wish that we could do right now. Um, But beyond that, I hope that they take away this idea that perfection is impossible. And we need to stop trying to attain this, you know, unachievable ideal and making everybody else feel like they can't measure up in the meantime. And I hope that they take away uh, empathy for all of these characters because, you know, I wanted to write this book about characters that on the surface you might love to hate, but then sort of surprise attack you into liking them. (laughs) Um, because I, I certainly had empathy for all of these characters by the end of it. And that's sort of how Claire feels, too. Like she walks into this group with one preconceived notion and it turned out to be something completely different. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. She's expecting this playgroup experience to be demeaning and awful. And she's going to have to grit her teeth around these women that she hates. But it's so much more than that. I love that in your bio, you reference having sung to far too many babies. How many babies do you estimate you, you've had to sing to? Oh, my God. Thousands upon thousands. <laughs> I did this for years. And, like, I would do, you know, private play groups, but I would also do big children's birthday parties. So 
a lot of New York babies got a little taste of my wheels on the bus <laughs> singing. Was that the big hit? Uh, wheels on the bus was really big. Honestly, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands was huge. Uh, oh, I want to give a shout out to Lori Berkner. She's a children's musician who writes incredible songs. They're so creative, but they're also not annoying to parents. And anytime <laughs> I played one of her songs, people loved it. Probably because it was something different and it didn't get stuck in your head, right? <laughs> yeah. But for you, if people walk away from this interview and cannot get out happy and you know it out of their head, that would be awesome. I know. I hope it haunts them until they order a copy of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking with Laura Hankin. The book is Happy and You Know It. Thank you for spending some time and talking to us today. Thank you. It was fun. The summer months are traditionally one of the busiest times of the year for weddings. But like a lot of things in 2020, the coronavirus pandemic has changed that with many happy couples putting off the planning and partying until some future save the date. If you find yourself yearning for such a celebration, you can live vicariously through two books inspired by one of the world's most famous brides, Grace Kelly. Before we all had to stay home, I welcomed the girl in white gloves author Carrie Mayer and the Grace Kelly dress author Brenda Janowitz to our studios. I'm going to ask you both the same question, but Carrie, I'll ask you first. What drew you to write about Grace Kelly? Well, my mother was a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan, and so two of her favorite, favorite movies were Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. So I watched these when I was a pretty young girl, and so Grace Kelly was just part of my growing up, and um, her movies and her persona and, you know, everything about her, um, she was just on my radar, and so... um, it, you know, when, when it came time for me to write my second novel after the Kennedy debutante, I was sort of thinking I wanted to write about someone in the 50s, um, and Grace Kelly very quickly came to mind. You know, I knew that she had made some movies in the 50s, but not later, and I knew that she was an American woman who had um, married some prince somewhere in Europe, and those <laughs> those two facts alone presented some really interesting questions to me, like, well, why didn't she make movies after the 50s? And what was it like to marry a prince? And so very quickly, my novelist brain kind of kicked in and was like, ah, she sounds interesting. And we're going to get into how you did that story. But I want to ask the same question to Brenda. What drew you to Grace Kelly? Yeah, so when it came time to write my sixth novel, I knew I wanted to write about a wedding dress. My agent had sent me this story from the Today Show about a wedding dress that had been passed down through 11 generations. And this was just so incredible to me, just this idea of the multiple generations and the heirloom item, and it just, everything was right in my wheelhouse. So when I started writing, uh, I was describing a wedding dress, and to me, the ultimate wedding gown is Grace Kelly's. So I'm describing her gown, and I don't think my agent even knew what I was doing, because at one point she said, well, why are you calling it the Grace Kelly dress? And I said, well, the dress I'm describing is Grace Kelly's dress. So we decided to just go all in with the Grace Kelly influence, and like Carrie, I've always sort of been obsessed with Grace Kelly my whole life, her movies, her life, just her legacy, just becoming a, a movie star and then becoming a princess. There's just something about that happily ever after, the idea of happily ever after that just always drew me to him. And Carrie, you open your book actually with an epitaph from Grace Kelly, which you don't have your book in front of you, so I'll read it. <laughs> Thank you. Which kind of ties into what you were just saying. Yeah. 
Fairy tales tell imaginary stories. Me, I'm a living person. I exist. The story of my life as a real woman were to be told one day. People would at last discover the real being that I am. And that is verbatim from Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly herself. I, I, I found that somewhere in very early days of my research and took it as a total dare. <laughs> I was like, okay, game on. <laughs> so do you think you accomplished in telling a real story about her, even though you've written historical fiction? Yeah, so that is an important distinction. You know, my novel is for sure an interpretation of her life. You know, it's not, it is not Grace Kelly speaking, you know, to us directly. But, you know, that's the beauty of being a novelist and getting to use your imagination. You know, you do your homework, you read all the books and read as much as you can. And then you set yourself the task of imagining what it would have been like to be her in some specific, like, amazing moments of her life, like her wedding. Are you worried at all that readers, particularly maybe of a younger generation who didn't grow up with Grace Kelly, they just know, oh, she became America's first princess somewhere, might read your book and think, oh, this is what her life is actually like? Well, hopefully they'll read the author's note and, <laughs> um, and know, you know, that, uh, uh, that that can't quite be true. And, you know, and readers of historical fiction, I think, are versed in, in understanding that, um, biographical novels are not biographies and they, and they are, nor are they memoirs. You know, they are, they are the author's, um, uh, imagining of the person's life. What for you was the hardest part in creating this fictional character of Grace Kelly? That's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, in some ways, it wasn't so much creating Grace Kelly. It was the some of the peripheral characters. It was like when I had to come to the scene with Alfred Hitchcock in it, I was like, really? Am I really going to sit down and put words in Alfred Hitchcock's mouth? <laughs> but, you know, there were some great stories about the two of them and what they were like on set together um, that I just couldn't wait to put in there. So um, I was able to kind of get over that um, as I, as I, you know, closed my door and just sat down with my computer and wrote. Her very public life must have helped. I'm sure there was reams of information. Not that all of it was true because she appeared in the gossip columns so often. Yeah. So there was a lot of sifting through material. You know, I read a number of biographies um, and you, I began to see certain kinds of patterns and certain kinds of like truths, if you want to call them that, um, emerge from sort of compare and contrast. You know, the other thing that I did, I tried to read as many primary source materials as I could, you know, letters in her own hand. There are very, very few of them in the public domain. The best of the bunch was at the Margaret Herrick Library out in Los Angeles. Um, uh, but I also went to the places that she lived. I live outside of Boston, so it wasn't hard for me to go down to Philadelphia for a weekend, and I went to her house. This is all very public information. You can Google it. You know, I went to, uh, drove by her house in East Falls, um, and that was really interesting to see. You know, it was a house that her father built. I also went to the the family's summer home in Ocean City, New Jersey, another house that the father built. Um, Her father was a very successful man in construction, Kelly for brickwork. Um, and I was also very lucky I got to go to uh, Monaco for a few days. And that, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> it was really, it was instrumental for me in really imagining her. Um, and uh, the other place I went to, because I'm from California, my parents and brother now live in Southern California. I spent a day trolling around the Hollywood Hills. Those are all places I had been before. 
But I, would, I was able to find out where her apartment that she shared with Rita Gam was on Sweetser Avenue. So I drove by the apartment. And it's just like down the hill from the Chateau Marmont. So, you know, getting to actually put my feet on the ground that she had walked on was super helpful for me in, in imagining her life and, and trying to get, get it down as best I could. Did you go into it thinking you would learn, you would come out of it looking at her in one way, and it turns out you came out of it looking at her in a different way? Very fortunately, I didn't go in with a lot of preconceived notions about her. You know, this was also true for my last novel, Kennedy Debutante. Like, I wasn't, I, I, I knew about the Kennedy family in a very basic way, but I didn't, I did not have a lot of preconceived ideas about her or her family. Same with Grace. Like I said earlier in our interview, like I only knew a few things about her. So it was re really a process of discovery for me, which was very exciting. What struck me about her in your book is she's painted as someone who's both flawed, but also has these great virtues. And which I guess I, I had an author in here just this morning who was talking about how women characters sometimes they either have to be perfect mm. or they're messy and that's why they got whatever was coming their way. And <laughs> really, like, this is a woman who she had to be perfect in public, but there's no way that that's possible. Yes. And in fact, that, that tension was one of the things that drew me to her story. You know, she has this very public, very famous, well-known persona as, you know, the ingenue, the ice queen. Um, and I just knew that that couldn't possibly be who she really was. And, and actually one of the most illustrative, I think, um, uh, sort of facts that I could show you, um, is that like when I was writing the book, I would tell people that I was writing about Grace Kelly. And one of the first things people would say to me was like, oh, and she married that prince, right? Yes. And he was a lot older than her, wasn't he? And I said, no, he wasn't. He was only six years older than he, she was. But the reason we think he's so much older is because all of her famous male co-stars were about a quarter of a century or more older than she was. Gary Cooper in High Noon was 28 years older than she was. Um, Clark Gable in Magambo, 28 years older than she was. Um, Cary Grant in To Catch a Thief was, I think, 26 years older. Jimmy Stewart was the spring chicken at 21 years older than she was. <laughs> and Bing Crosby, who she starred with twice, was 26 years older than she was. So that's why we have this idea of Grace Kelly with the older man. Um, but that's not actually who she wound up with. So I find it really interesting after reading the two books back to back that the Grace Kelly's wedding, Brenda, that's... Your wheelhouse, your book, right. really took all its inspiration for that. Yeah. And Carrie, in your book, it's just, you know, it's a couple of pages. I, and I was <laughs> expecting it to be like, oh, this is the wedding. This is what everyone remembers. This is the iconic wedding dress. And you chose not to really focus on it all that much. Why is that? I'll tell you a secret. I was going to skip it entirely. Whoa. And my, my editor was like, I think you have, I think you have to write it. <laughs> I was going to do some of like the, the, the surrounding days. And I think that was what I did ultimately really focus on. Um, because I did feel that that was information that readers could get from so many sources and that there was so much other interesting material about her life that I wanted to focus on. I didn't, I didn't want the wedding to be the, um, the, the main emphasis of the book. Um, and so, so I did wind up writing, obviously, um, a few pages. Um, but as you 
said. It's not the focus of the book. Whereas weddings, in particular, that's <laughs> that's where the the Grace Kelly dress. That's what it's all about. Yes, that's exactly what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us? It's it's three timelines, and it's. Uh, each woman who plans to wear this Grace Kelly-inspired dress. Right, exactly. The Grace Kelly dress is a story of three generations of women and the one dress that binds them together. And like you said, it's told in three different timelines. Our modern bride in 2020, when her mother's preparing to get married in 1982, and then in a little twist, you see the dress being made in 1958. And that's two years after Grace Kelly's wedding, and the idea is her dress design is sort of all the rage, and that's what everyone wants. And it felt really true to me because when I got married in 2008, that was all that I wanted. <laughs> Did you I, get your Grace Kelly dress? I, you know, I got some details from the Grace Kelly dress. I didn't get an exact replica of the dress, which I would have been fine with. But at the time, you know, you have to go with what they're showing in the stores and the style. But my wedding dress had a little tie around the waist, which was kind of a nod to her cummerbund. And I had delicate buttons and bows down the back, just like this. So in my own way, I had my own little Grace Kelly dress. <laughs> I love that um, in your story that, you know, people may think, oh, it's just going to be like a straight timeline of grandmother, mother, daughter, and right. this is how they do the dress. And there's this little bit of mystery. We don't necessarily know who the grandmother is. Right. We don't know where the mom ends up with her love life. It seems right. like it's very straightforward and... You know, it's a little twisty. <laughs> yeah, I very much, you know, at one point we were thinking of having three similar stories, three brides walking down the aisle, but then where's the interest in that? So we wanted to tell three very distinct stories. So I have each woman sort of at a different point in her life. And so Rocky, our modern bride, she's a little older, she's 30 years old, she's prepared in her career, she's sort of settled, she knows what she wants, and what she wants is her fiancé, Drew. She's thrilled about the wedding, a little less so about the dress. Uh, and, and in 1982, Joni is sort of, well, Rocky's mom, Joan, in 2020, but in 1982, we still called her Joni. Uh, she was, like, enthralled in Princess Di's wedding. So the update she wants to make to the dress is the Princess Diana sleeves, of course, mm -hmm. because I've seen many brides in the 80s with Princess Diana sleeves. So she's obsessed with the dress, but maybe less so with the fiancé. And then in 1958, we get a completely different story where we see the dress being made, and this lonely seamstress, we see sort of her hopes and fears and everything she puts into the dress and how the dress really becomes a symbol for everything she's feeling, which at one point begins to be love, which gets a little tricky for her. But um, just three very distinct stories. They all end differently. Um, at one point, I was going to end it with three weddings, but I just wanted the reader to have sort of a fuller experience with very different stories, not nothing repetitive, but that sort of come together really beautifully. There's an overarching theme of sentiment and history and past and yeah. how our past, as well as the past of people we love, really do play into the type of people we are and that we shouldn't forget that. And the dress comes yeah. start, starts to come to symbolize that. Absolutely. And that's something I really believe. I mean, even now I have children, they're 8 and 10, I start to see not only parts of myself and my kids, but parts of my my grandparents. I was about to say grandchildren. <laughs> but I see sometimes, every once in a while, I'll see my kids, something from my grandfather in them. And that's so amazing to me that this generation they've never even met somehow is part of them. Uh, and, you know, there is something to these heirlooms. They're sort of symbols of the past. And I wear Grandma Dorothy's ring every day. Uh, and she's sort of with me. And to me, it's the ring that sort of 
it, it's just my childhood. When I think of her, I think of her wearing this ring, and so it's really important to me. But also, when I have important days, I feel like she's sort of with me for the ride, and she would enjoy it. Uh, so there is something about those heirlooms. You know, I always teach my kids it's people that are important enough things. But when it comes to heirloom items, there is something special about them. You know, they say, like, if, you, if your house was on fire, what would you run out with? I think heirloom items are one of those things. So, Carrie, while you don't actually go into very specific detail about the wedding, the wedding planning is a part and is crazy. The same thing goes for your book, Brenda, with the wedding yes. planning. <laughs> so I guess my I'm going to ask you each the question, but Brenda, we'll start with you. What is it about wedding planning that makes people so crazy? Yeah. What is it indeed? You know, it's so fascinating because even the most laid-back, chill bride still manages to sort of get a little crazy. I know when I got married, I was sort of, you know, I was a little older. I was just happy to be getting married. I wasn't as into the wedding as I think maybe someone who... 20 or 23 would be into it. And I was just sort of excited about starting my life with this person. Uh, but even I got a little crazy with details, and there were certain things that sort of drove me mad because there's so much that they put into this idea of a wedding. A wedding isn't just a wedding. It's also a symbol of like a million different things, and for each member of your family, it means something different. So I remember it's like there was this reality I was living, but then my father had this other idea, and my mother had an idea, and so did my brother and my sister-in-law, and everyone sort of, even my best friend, you know, everyone sort of has their own narrative going throughout, and um, I think that's part of what makes it so sort of maddening. Um, and it's almost like by the time you get married, you're like, oh, God, is this day over already? <laughs> you're trying to enjoy it, but you're also like, oh, God, I can't wait to be on the other side of it. <laughs> it's almost humbling in a way that, you know, in your book, Harry, with, with Princess Grace, that she had to deal with all that, too. Her mom had one idea. Yeah. Her dad had another yes. idea. I've been the over Hollywood here studios. nodding my head as uh, yes, everything Brenda studios. was saying. I mean, my own wedding um, was 17 people, and yet mm -hmm. all the same sets of decisions had to be made, you know. And and it's true, you know, they there are competing expectations, and it's hard to make everyone happy. <laughs> So the, your book, Carrie, ends with, I think, if there, there are a couple of things that everybody knows about Grace Kelly. She married the prince. She had the dress. Yep. She died in a horrible car accident. Yes. And, and that's where your book ends. And it ends in such a way, like, I was actually pretty shocked by it, like, how, how final it felt. But it also felt in a way, like, when a movie goes to dark. Or like how The Sopranos ended, where it just went to black. Oh, gosh, yes. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> but but yes, like yes, that. yes, yes. Well, you know, it's, it is hard, you know, when you're writing the story of someone's life and you know you're writing it to the end and you know that every single, this is not a spoiler, right? Like, because everyone knows how this story ends. Um, you really are taking the reader on the journey with you. Um, and and, uh, and the interior life, I think the drama is in the interior life of the character and how certain things play out. And there are certainly surprises along the way, you know, like uh, at, um, uh, Brenda and I did an event last night and I talked about, she had a very long relationship with Oleg Cassini, who's much more famous for dressing Jackie Kennedy. Um, but they were, they had a very serious relationship for more than a year um, and that's, that was a surprise to me, and I think that's going to be a surprise to many readers, just the fact of their relationship and then certainly the way it unfolded. What do you want readers to take away from your story? I want readers to come away with the sense that she really was a real woman with a beating heart and blood in her veins, you know, that um, 
that she she had struggles just like all of us do. She was a daughter. She was a wife. She was a mother. She um, was so much more, in, like ironically, so much more than what we see in the on the magazine covers and in the movies. So I think that's it. Brenda, what do you want readers to take away from your Grace Kelly inspired book? Yeah, I love Carrie's answer. I, can I use that from now on? Yes. That was fantastic. <laughs> you know, when I write a book, I'm always just looking for readers to really enjoy themselves. But uh, since the book came out last week, people have been reaching out to talk about different heirloom items in their own lives, which has made me feel amazing. And people have been reaching out telling me about their own wedding gowns. One woman uh, wore a gown with her grandmother, sewed by hand. So those kind of things are just just touching my heart. It's really incredible to see. So I would just love people to think about their family and their family traditions and their heirlooms and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I just want readers to have a great reading experience and enjoy themselves. And maybe not throw out those old things too quickly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we've been having a lovely conversation with two great authors who both wrote Grace Kelly-inspired books, Carrie Mayer, The Girl in the White Gloves, and Brenda Janowitz, The Grace Kelly Dress. Thank you so much for coming by today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we speak with the queen of Beach Reads, Mary Kay Andrews, about her aptly titled 28th novel, Hello Summer. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.